She broke the glass ceiling, we said, when she went to be the senior minister of the Riverside Church in New York City. And then the glass cut her on the way down. Well, we're going to talk to the Reverend Amy Butler about her rise and fall and her rising again uh, after being the minister of that great church in New York. Stay tuned for Good God. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm here with my dear friend, the Reverend Amy Butler. Amy, welcome back to the program. Thanks, George. We enjoyed uh, a conversation uh, in the last episode that uh, was far-reaching about women in leadership and about what happened in your relationship to your previous church, the Riverside Church in New York. But I think uh, let's, let's just start out with, you know, going back a little bit, uh, we've known one another uh, for, I don't know, 25 years at least, yep. right? Uh, and let's just sort of get out there uh, <laughs> that, that, that uh, we've gotten to know each other a lot better uh, over the last uh, decade or so, uh, but, but it maybe didn't start out all that well between us. Go ahead. Well, I will never forget where I was sitting when I had the telephone interview with you for a job at Wilshire when I graduated from seminary and you didn't hire me. So, <laughs> by the way, that was a really smart decision. <laughs> well, I've actually been um, in charge of a search for a position twice and didn't hire That's you. That's correct. Um, but, um, <laughs> so, all right. Yeah, now we what all that means. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I think God had other ideas, <laughs> and I'll just defer to God God's will ideas, or something yeah. about that, yeah, right? Uh -huh. But honestly, um, the, 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 the trajectory of your ministry has been a remarkable one. I mean, when you didn't come to Wilshire, you yes. went to New Orleans and uh, had a ministry there uh, among the homeless, yes. uh, and uh, eventually uh, you, you became the pastor of a church in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, also a historic church. Mm -hmm. uh, many people probably don't know the history of that church, but a, a really important church in, in Baptist life, too. And uh, tell us a little bit about those two movements before the next one that was to, to New York. Right, so when you didn't hire me. Yes. I, that was a time when it was very difficult for women to get break into pastoral roles. Right. Um, also, I have always been a terrible number two, so like terrible. <laughs> and back then when I was, what, 25 years old, I was pretty sure I knew everything, <laughs> so. Um, so I had the opportunity to run a homeless shelter at a very large, like downtown gospel rescue mission that served about 200 men a night. And there was a little house in the back. They wanted to open a shelter for women. And there was room for about six women. And it was terrible. The place was condemned. There were rats. It was disgusting. And um, I, I always say like that those years were so formational for my ministry because I learned about drugs, I learned about the sex trade, I learned about the crack epidemic, I learned about systems that 
perpetuate racism yes. and poverty. Mm -hmm. And I learned about how women are treated in our society in ways I hadn't learned before. Um, this was like, like the lowest kind of shelter you could ever enter into. And um, I, I think I learned how to be a pastor mm -hmm. in those years. And I also met some nuns, Marianite nuns, who really like changed the way I thought about like spiritual practice and wow. the role of women in mm -hmm. leadership. They were just phenomenal. And, um, but I, I always felt the call toward the, the parish because I thought if I could facilitate individuals finding the call of God on their lives and then going out to change the world, then, then my work could be amplified, right? right. So I had the opportunity to be an associate at St. Charles Avenue Baptist, where I learned that I was a terrible number two. And, um, but I loved the parish and that whole idea of beloved community and mm -hmm. who we can be in the world together. And that's when I started looking for a pastorate and Calvary and I met each other and I went to Calvary and was there for 11 years. Right. Some of which were very, very difficult mm -hmm. because I went when I was 32 and also felt like I knew everything. But institutional change is really hard. Right. Mm -hmm. And shifting a whole like community's way of thinking is difficult, isn't it, George? Well, yes, I came to Wilshire when I was 32. Mm. And um, just um, now celebrating 30 years here. And yes, it is. It is a long process that has moments when you take big leaps but most of the time it's about uh, gradually moving attitudes and, um, and, and helping people make changes and, uh, un until it feels normal, right? right? And uh, I think most change happens well in churches when people aren't completely aware that it's happening, mm -hmm. uh, that it, it, it's, it's just following their best instincts about what God wants for them. And leadership is helping them to recognize that and, and move toward it. But there are moments, right, when we have to have very big decisions. So three years ago here, of course, we made the decision to, uh, remarkable to say so, to treat everyone equally, you know, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. And uh, that was very pivotal. It wasn't something we could do incrementally. Right. Uh, it was something that took a decision. Similarly, about 28 years ago, we decided to ordain women. And so things like that take big moments of decision. Um, but when the church, as you're describing it, when the church makes these decisions, what impact does that have on society? Uh, it feels to me like over time uh, we undervalue the modeling role that congregations have for the larger society. Right. Well, I'll back up a little and say like churches cannot make these big shifts or small shifts without the strong relational leadership of a good pastoral leader. I mm -hmm. mean, your people will step into the fear of the unknown because they trust you. Uh -huh. And that's right. what happened at Wilshire three years ago. Mm -hmm. 
and I have great admiration for you Thank for you. taking that risk and um, doing the right thing. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I think the church just seeds that responsibility of being a model for society over and over and over again. Yes. I would always say at Riverside, you know, like we cannot proclaim all of these big calls for justice and um, love and fairness if we do not do it yes. inside the walls of our church. Right. So here is where the hard work begins mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. our, our witness has, has no integrity right. if we do not live it right. inside the walls. Um, when I left Calvary, it took them three years to call new pastors, and it was a really rough time for them and for me. I felt guilty for leaving. I loved them. It was hard, and I remember the day that they called their new pastors who are a married lesbian couple. Um, I got a text from a church member at Calvary who said, we called our new pastors, we are so over you. Oh my goodness. And then she followed up with another text that says, we could never have done this without 11 years of you loving us to get to okay. this point. Okay, all right, that's where it was going. Yeah, and I yeah. was just like, okay. Okay. So. That's the kind of incremental change that good pastoral leadership puts in place, right? Sure. I hope. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's, it's always interesting to me that churches tend to wrestle with this question of how much culture is influencing the church and how much church influences the culture, right? And in more evangelical circles, I would say, uh, there is a fear that a kind of Hollywood culture of values, uh, the cultural uh, elite, a more permissive, uh, liberal um, view of the world or ways of relating to people will infect the church and it will lose its uniqueness, its, its ability to speak against the culture. And yet, at the same time, there seems to be this sort of blindness about how much a culture of racial prejudice, of uh, patriarchy, uh, of uh, nationalism, of the church being in service to the, to the country as if we are the, the country's um, spiritual um, guide uh, in a sense. But not actually guidance, but actually um, blessing, regardless of, of what our leaders say or do. Uh, there, there seems to be this blindness about, about that. And so, you know, culture influences us either way, and the question is, how is the church, right, supposed to make a difference in the world? Oh, this debate just drives me crazy. I think it's like, it's like the epitome of privilege to sit around thinking, how much should we be in the world? How much should we not be in the world? Yes. The, that just shows how much power and comfort you have to even ask that question, Okay. number one. Number two, the church is the culture. Yes. I mean, look at what's going on in America right now. Mm -hmm. I'm embarrassed to be a Christian if you define it by what's going on on Fox News. Right. That's, to me, not Christianity, and I don't want any part of it. Right. Um, so don't give me any of this crap about like the church, the culture, whatever, it's all mixed together. Yeah. 
and it's sick. It's a sickness. Um, I think, and I've always thought, that the church has seated its place at the table with a, a kind of arrogance that has made us um, impotent. Yeah. Why should anybody in the culture who wants to change things listen to what we have to say? Right. But um, we're to the point now where the Amazon is burning and the, the world is dying and people are in pain. And if we don't step up to the table and start with all humility contributing to the conversation of how we make good in the world right. for everyone, then the church deserves to go to hell. Whoa, there's a line. The church deserves to go to hell. Isn't it true, though, that the, the church is supposed to go to hell in a different way? That is to say, we're supposed to storm the gates of hell, right? I mean, we're supposed to be willing to go to where people are experiencing misery, where there is uh, vulnerability and marginalization. When you say the Amazon is burning, that's not a metaphor. The Amazon is burning. Right. Our world is heating up both literally and figuratively. And if the church has heaven to offer, it's only because we go to hell, right. we, because we are willing to be present in those places. And so this to me seems to be, you know, the, the the transition I want to make is we when we come back from the break is to talk about what hope you have for the voice of the church. Where where are we imagining the church's positive role to be in the coming generation as we look at our ministry in the years ahead? Okay. All right. Thanks. Okay. The Good God program is a project of Faith Commons a nonprofit organization I founded in 2018 to help promote the common good. Doing public theology across faith traditions and across racial and ethnic lines is an important thing today in our communities. We hope you'll continue to enjoy Good God, but look at some of the other things we're doing also through Faith Commons at www.faithcommons.org. We're back with Amy Butler, and Amy, we were talking before the break about the church and its direction uh, going forward in uh, at least the church in America as we have understood it and as we have participated in it. Can you tease out some trajectories for us? Where do you think the Spirit of Christ is leading the church in this time? So. We started by talking about my pastoral trajectory, and if you look back at my work, the homeless shelter, Calvary, Riverside, there's a common theme there, and that theme is desperation. Okay, all right. And um, my coach says I should talk to my therapist about that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm overly attracted to moments of desperation because I think those are the moments in which we finally feel the pain enough to change. Yes. And I think the church in America this next decade is pivotal. Mm -hmm. Like the transfer of capital and wealth 
within church denominations mm -hmm. is staggering. Yes. I read something the other day that said, um, this year alone, the United Methodist Church is going to close 400 churches in the city of Seattle, right? That's happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. And um, as you know, people are freaking out. Mm -hmm. You know, this question of like, how can we reconstruct what we had is not even really a viable question anymore. Right. Which is great. Right. I mean, uh, we just heard news this week that the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida, is selling off 90% of its footprint. Right. Now, this was sort of a megachurch before megachurches. I mean, this was a big fundamentalist, conservative, Southern Baptist church uh, that had pastors who were president of the Southern Baptist Convention and all of that. 90% of their property mm -hmm. they're selling off. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to redo because they're much smaller. Mm -hmm. They have much less need for all of this space. All over America, this is what's happening in churches. Why, right, why? I, I, I think, well, I'll just pass it to you and say, <laughs> answer that question, please. Oh, why? Lot, well, there's a lot of reasons, and I think fundamentally it has to do with the church's unwillingness to show up collaboratively at the table to talk about who we want to be in community with our neighbors yes. beyond our walls. We haven't done it right. um, out of a certain kind of privilege and arrogance, and we're paying the price. Right. Um, I've gotten to know over this past year some amazing folks in Europe who are a couple of decades ahead of us hmm. around this, you know, churches closing all over and selling off land and property. Right. And what they've found is when churches leave a community, there's a, a real gap there because people need places to gather and to ask hard questions. And so what's happening is sort of spiritual innovators are coming in and figuring out ways to build community while doing good in collaboration with neighbors at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Starting a farmer's market and then building a pediatric practice next to it and giving the kids prescriptions for um, fruits and vegetables whenever they come to see their doctor. You know, things like that that are not like sitting in the pew singing out of a hymn book, but mm. that do reflect mm. gospel work in the world. And so I think in this moment of desperation, let's think about this 90% of property that's being sold off. Where's that money going? Right. What if we choose in this moment to invest in the future, take the properties that we're selling and all of these buildings that we're um, turning into condos and put those incredible amount of resources to work funding innovation. Right. Because you know as well as I do that there are seminarians who come to that training called by God with lives that are committed to changing the world and then they get out and the institution squashes them and they leave. Right. We are losing mm -hmm. Gospel innovators. Right. Gospel innovators. I love that. So I, I think it sh we should say that the gospel part is the church's role. Uh, it, in, when we bring uh, social transformation uh, to, to the fore, 
this is good news. Yes. Gospel, good news. And I think we have an old dichotomy that is just so false, and that is the church should just preach the gospel on the one hand, or it's just going to do social work on the other hand. And, and what I think both of us have been trying to say in our ministries for a long time is that these are not two things. You don't collapse one into the other either. They, they have a holy synergy to them. Mm. I mean, we really are bringing a sense of God's presence and blessing and a wholeness to people's lives and an awareness of of the the role of being in a real relationship with God when we are engaging with people in making the world a better place as God has dreamed for it. And so when the church does that, uh, it becomes a, a kind of um, uh, advanced step for others to see what's possible. And then they, it can be scaled uh, beyond that, right? To be a gospel innovator means to go to those places, find those ways in which we can do something about that, and, and, and then see where that takes us, right? Yes, yes. And we've been so afraid of that for so long, but I think now we're desperate enough maybe to try to find these future leaders and help them reimagine who the church is going to be and how the church is going to show up in the world to, to make things better. So that actually is a perfect segue to the question to Amy Butler, what's next, Amy? Well, I just, you know, I want to t- change the world, George. <laughs> yes, and how do you plan to do that now when you have uh, just left the pulpit at uh, Riverside Church, the Riverside Church, uh, you have some exciting ideas about um, social venture capitalism and those I sorts do, of things, and investment. I'm still working on, you know, healing and, and closure. Mm-hmm. I didn't really get a chance to say goodbye to my congregation the way that I wanted to. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm still working on that a bit and um, finishing up my book that will come out in the in the spring. And so those are projects that I'm immediately doing. but. I've been asking these questions about um, about investing in the future for some time now, and it just seems like now is the moment. There is a large group of millennial philanthropists in our country who are not investing in the stock market, who instead want to use their wealth to invest in efforts that do good in the world, and they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they are lacking in a, a narrative, in some ritual, in some sustenance for keeping up their work. And wait, 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 wait! A narrative, mm. a story, yeah. the the rituals mm. of it, how to maintain the sustenance mm. of that sounds an awful lot like ministry. Yeah. So I'm like, so where is the church? Where is the church? So. Um, Against all odds, my father thinks this is hilarious. I, I'll be speaking at the Social Capital Investing <laughs> Conference mm-hmm. in October in San Francisco. Um, this is a conference that brings together um, the intersection at the intersection of money and meaning. Money and meaning. Right. 
Wow, you mean money doesn't just mean something automatically? There, there, we, yeah. we have to th think anew about this? That's right. Good. That's right. And so why shouldn't the church be in conversations about how we use our money, our resources to do good in the world? Right. The church should be <laughs> at the front of those conversations. Right. And we're not. Um, because we've been so preoccupied with um, Surviving. Maintaining the institution. Surviving. Maintaining, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, uh, in, in defense to a certain extent of that, there are lots of little boys and girls and lots of people who need to uh, be formed and shaped in the faith, and we want them to have a place to come, a Sunday school class to grow up in, to learn their Bible stories, and to um, find who they are in, in Christ and what God calls us to and loving our neighbor and all those sorts of things. So yes, it would be wonderful if we could have both of those things. We're, we're all about just preserving uh, the institution, but also at the same time uh, enlisting the institution in the mission of God in the world. Yes. Uh, uh, which is bigger than just the footprint uh, of real estate that we have. Right. So I'm imagining in my head, so maybe 98% of these churches and denominations and institutions that are dying are going to say, no thanks, Amy Butler, you're crazy. Um, we're just going to keep maintaining our institution until we die, and then we'll close the doors and whatever. Right. And maybe 2% of them will say, wait, there's a hopeful theological narrative? Mm -hmm. You mean... Our faith really is about death and resurrection. Oh, this is beautiful. Keep going. You mean yeah. like we could send our witness forward? We could invest in the future? We could imagine a future where God's hope for the world comes to be right. and we could be part of it? Right. All right, let me hear more. Right. I can't tell you how many churches I feel like are on hospice. Yes. And, and, and they just, they are just in a routine and they've watched their members die off or their neighborhood change and they have not been able to adapt and they just know each other and they're in a routine about that they and they they are willing to just play it out until the last one is buried and i i had a i had a man come to me you'll, you'll love this so our church was born out of a split with a church down the road shocker shocker right and uh, so, to the credit of the people who started Wilshire Baptist Church, they did not want to carry all the baggage of leaving Lakewood Baptist Church. Uh, and, and so, they, they sort of made a covenant that they would think about the future and what kind of church they wanted to be and they wouldn't react all the time. And they were only moderately successful about that, as you can imagine, because it just is what it is. But about 25 years ago, now, uh, a man named Roy Mason, no relation, was walking in the hallway. I'd known him a little bit through the years. He was a jeweler, and uh, he was the treasurer of the Lakewood Baptist Church. And uh, he, uh, he, I saw him in the hallway here at Wilshire, and I said, Roy, what are you doing? He said, well, I was looking for you. I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, he pulled out an envelope from his pocket, and he said, I I just closed the doors on Lakewood Baptist Church for the last time and turned over the keys. Hmm. And I have in my hand a check 
um, for the value of the property that we sold, and I'm taking it down to the Baptist Foundation of Texas. He said, today, Lakewood Baptist Church is going to do more for the kingdom of God than it has done in many decades. Mm. And I just wanted someone to know. Mm. It broke my heart, and yet, as I'm thinking about our conversation, that may be one of the most hopeful things when if churches could not wait until they die, but instead say, we have assets here. Yeah. We have massive assets. How could we mobilize our assets uh, for the work of God in the world and do it in a way that could spur uh, well-being and, and, and give an imagination to people about what God is up to through the church? My goodness, what could happen? Right. And you might just take that next step in helping us learn that. Who knows? It might fail, but I'm not afraid of failure. I think we've learned that about you. Amy, thank you so much for being with us, for the wonderful friendship we've had through the years and continue. I can't wait to see what your next adventure will lead you to and for all of us too. Thanks, George. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons.